Here's where shit gets really wackadoodle. When we do studies, we find that people prefer flow to every other experience on earth, period. If I know how to hack flow, I don't require a substance or a technology to put myself in a state of peak performance. And throughout, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Creativity spikes in flow, but it's somewhere between 400 and 700%. Heightened creativity will outlast the flow state sometimes by a day, maybe two. So really, like not only are you getting super creativity in the state, but you're getting some of that residual over the rest of your you know, next couple of days, which is really cool. I mean, the smaller wins are the secret, right? Like literally, what's the secret to accomplishing the impossible? What's the secret to high performance? What's the secret to productivity? Tiny wins and learn to love them. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method Hey listeners, welcome to the show today and I have to tell you that I'm incredibly excited for today's guest. He is not only the author of two of my top read books and my top recommended books, but he is a leading researcher on cutting edge technology and information regarding flow and flow states and neuroscience and brain chemistry, neurochemistry, and his name, you guys, is Stephen Kotler. Stephen's the author of numerous books, including Bold in abundance both he co-authored with peter diamandis he's also the author of west of jesus tomorrowland the rise of superman and stealing fire the latter two being two of the books that i recommend that anybody reads they're really great and i loved reading them i actually will probably read them both at least a second time on the show today we get to chat with Stephen for an hour and a half about a variety of subjects that he specializes in including many topics that are that are addressed in his new novel called The Last Tango in Cyberspace. In the beginning of the show we get to know Stephen's backstory for a few minutes before we delve deep into flow, flow states, the science behind flow and some incredible stories of high performers including Stephen while they were in flow states and how it directly affects their performance. We then dive into the details of the last tango in cyberspace and some important issues that the storyline addresses throughout the novel. In the book and on the podcast, we talk about technology and where it's headed, artificial intelligence, becoming conscious, psychedelics, and using them to expand technology, empathy, and space tourism. And at the end of the podcast, we get to learn how Stephen uses flow, his favorite meditation techniques, and his daily routine. You guys, I cannot recommend a podcast 
podcast and interview. Highly enough, this guy is on the cusp of leading technology for people to become high performers. And you have to check out not only the show, but his books, especially his new novel, The Last Tango in Cyberspace. You guys, without further ado, I want to welcome Stephen Kotler to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast, and I am incredibly excited to welcome somebody who I'm a big fan of, fan of his books and his research and and all the biohacking and high productivity research that he's done over the years, Stephen Kotler. My friend, Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm super well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show, and I'm excited to talk about your new book and and all of the research that you've been doing. Uh, But just curious real quick, where are you calling in from? Northern New Mexico. I'm sort of like 45 minutes north in Santa Fe. You drive north, you head into the mountains, you come to the middle of nowhere, and you take a left. That's how you find me. (laughs) Left at the big tree, right? (laughs) Go up the hill, look for the car. Yes, that's it. That's it. Uh, why do you, is that your home is, I'm guessing that's your home base. It is for, uh, I'm moving to, uh, Northern, uh, what is, is South, Southern, South, whoa, where am I going? I'm going to South Lake Tahoe, uh, sort of on the Nevada side, uh, in six weeks. So this is, this is the end of a decade in, in, uh, in New Mexico for me. Hey, really quick. I'm always curious why people choose their, their places and, you know, you've been a decade in New Mexico, um, you know, I think when people are in different cities, they can have different types of creativity and thoughts and ideas and, and, and action and success in different areas of their life. So I'm curious, is there a reason why you chose New Mexico and then why you're choosing Tahoe now? Uh, I chose, we chose New Mexico for a lot of reasons, but primarily because my wife and I uh, co-founded a, a dog sanctuary, Rancho de Chihuahua, a dog sanctuary, and uh, we wanted to work in a very low-income frontline community. So I live in a very, very poor part of New Mexico that has a very high degree of animal cruelty. And oh, so wow. uh, wanted to put ourselves on the front lines. And um, New Mexico has the advantage of being very, very close to awesome skiing and an airport. So those are the things I needed. Um, and uh, it's also really, really, really quiet here. Most of my best friends are trees. <laughs> and then how about Tahoe? I lived there in the '90s, and uh, it uh, it's one of the few places. I don't want to go back to a city. I want to again. I want to be very close to skiing, and I want to be very close to an airport. Um, it's also really close to San Francisco, where some of my companies are based, and it was, it's it's just an amazing place. And I've got a, a really big community there, and I like. It's an action sports community. So now, if I go to the doctor and they look at my chart and they go, "Holy crap, you've broken 80 bones." If you go to the doctor in Tahoe and they look at your chart and they see that, they're like, oh, yeah, you're like everybody else I talk to up here. Um, <laughs> so you fit right in. <laughs> I do. It's kind of nice. Good, good, good. We're going to chat about your new book that's coming out soon and some of the other uh, research that you've been doing. But I, I first want to want the listeners to get a bit of your backstory because I don't know too much about you pre-10 years ago. And so I'd love to, if you don't mind filling in the blanks and sharing with the listeners and myself, how you developed into the uh, expert biohacker, productivity, high performance man that you are today. Um, 
Well, uh, I was a, I'm a, I was I'm a journalist and I'm an author, and uh, there's a bunch of different ways to tell this story. But the the short version is um, early in my career, uh, I became a journalist in the early 1990s, and back then, if you uh, action sports were just becoming a very hot topic, Gravity Games, X Games, all those things were just getting underway. So back then, if you could ride and ski or ride and surf or ride and rock climb or whatever, there was a lot of work. And I couldn't do any of those things very well, but I really needed the work. Um, and I lied to my editors and spent about a decade chasing professional action adventure sport athletes around mountains and across oceans. And um, if you're not a professional athlete and you spend a lot of your time chasing pro athletes around mountains, you're going to break bones. I broke, as we mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, on a lot of bones. And uh, then I would end up taking a lot of time off. And what would happen is I would, you know, snap this or that, take three or four months off. And I come, came back. The progress I saw was astounding. It, it was leaps and bounds kind of stuff. It didn't make any sense. Stuff that had been absolutely impossible, never been done, never going to be done. Human body can't take it or take your pick. Um, wasn't just being done. It was being iterated upon. And that really caught my attention, caught my attention for a lot of different reasons. One of which is if you go back to the early 1990s, action adventure sports, this was a rowdy punk rock, irreverent bunch of people without a lot of natural advantages. Most of the people I knew came from bad childhoods and broken homes had very little money. They didn't have a ton of education as a rule. And yet here they were on a semi-regular basis kind of redefining what was possible for our species. And I wanted to understand what the hell was going on. I wanted to, I, you know, I, I was seeing stuff that actually looked like magic. It looked like people were defying the laws of gravity and physics and didn't make any sense to me. Um, I also knew at that point they'd broken a lot of bones. And if I didn't stop chasing professional athletes around mountains, I was going to die. And so I took this question of what does it take to do the impossible pretty much everywhere I could. I took it into technology, wrote uh, my book Tomorrowland, for example, is a book about those maverick innovators who turn science fiction uh, ideas into science fact technology. Bold is a look at upstart entrepreneurs, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, people who built world-changing businesses in record time. And often, you know, the impossible part, um, a lot of those companies uh, a lot of those entrepreneurs built companies in sectors where nobody thought innovation was possible or nobody even thought you could build a business and they were successful. I looked with Peter Diamandis, we wrote Abundance, and we looked at individuals and small teams taking on impossible global challenges like poverty, energy, scarcity, healthcare, things that 10, 20 years ago had been the sole province of big governments or large corporations and suddenly here were individuals going after these same kind of challenges and succeeding, you know, doing, doing the impossible where, where governments and corporations couldn't do that ahead of time. So I, you know, I, the, the core question has always been, what the hell is going on? How is that possible? Um, not going to tell you this portion of the story because it's too long, but uh, the answer is whenever you see the impossible become possible, you see a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. And, um, that was what I discovered very early on. And I also discovered that flow was uh, an amazing science, but it was very, very balkanized. And I was, at the same time I was a uh, sports writer, I was also a science writer. Those were sort of my two niches. And I was really interested in neuroscience. And um, most of the really interesting flow work had been done, you know, everybody sort of knew about the psychology a little bit because of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and his best-selling book, Flow. But 
What nobody realized is that the neuroscience had progressed by leaps and bounds over the past couple of decades. And right. um, it was starting to be possible to kind of figure out mechanism, where these states of peak performance were coming from, how to get more of them. And I was obsessed. I mean, I was just madly obsessed. I spent 20 years sort of writing about, I think I wrote four or five books about flow over the years. I wrote a column for Psychology Today for a long time on flow, on and on and on. And after about 20 years of it, I kept trying to get academics, my friends who were neuroscientists, to start a flow research project, basically. And I, they wouldn't do it because flow was too controversial. The work was very, very difficult. It was hard to understand. It was altered states of consciousness. You know, it set off a lot of alarm bells inside of academia. And it was just, academia was just too conservative. And in around 2011, a friend of mine, Andrew Hessel, is a synthetic biologist, um, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant biologist, um, and a geneticist sat me down and he had built a very, he had built the first nonprofit end-to-one synthetic bio cancer, com cancer research company, which basically means he was trying to build using synthetic biology. So uh, rewriting DNA, he was trying to build end-to-one cancer drugs. So can everybody's cancer is individual, and he was trying to build a, a drug that would target your cancer or my cancer, take your pet. Very controversial as well. And he uh, started out, when he started out doing this, he was at Amgen, big powerhouse biopharmaceutical, and uh, had to leave to do this. And he sat me down and said, look, you're never going to be able to do what you want with flow inside of academia. For all these reasons, I had to take my project outside of that world. But I'll tell you what, if you do this, if you, if you, if you take your project out of academia and you start this you know, research project, um, I'll join your board and I'll back you. And I'll bet if you talk to all your other neuroscience friends, they'll say the same thing because we've all been waiting for you to do this. We think you're the expert and you should do it. And I called three or four of you know, the, the, my neuroscience friends who were some of the top guys in the world, and they said, hell yes, we'll join your board, do this. And that's sort of where it came from. And so I now at the Flow Research Collective, uh, I think, can't tell, but I, I have one of the two or three largest flow labs in the world at this point. We've got research partnerships that go everywhere from like Deloitte and Formula One through USC, UCLA, Imperial College London, uh, a number of other institutions. Uh, and, uh, and the work is really fun, really exciting. It sounds really fun. Can, can, you, can you describe for us um, what a flow lab looks like? Oh, at this point it doesn't look like anything because we're a totally distributed organization. Um, and but uh, I mean, it, it, so we, our lab um, is mostly mobile because we take the tech to where it needs to go. Okay. But for example, when we need to do big fMRI work, we do that uh, with Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who's on my board, who is the head of uh, the Jeff Jeff Jefferson Myrna Center for Integrative Medicine in Philadelphia. And he's on, this, uh, on faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. And he does... Um, that our big fMRI stuff that that's where that stuff gets takes place and we have partners like that in various places um, who do that work with us so I want to real quick um, just define flow for any listeners out there that don't know exactly what it is and correct me if I'm wrong but basically when your mind goes from beta state of mind into and the brain waves slow down and go into alpha and theta and even into delta state of mind. Is that correct? Or is flow exist in alpha and theta? So 
Let's back up. Let's start with the psychological definition and then we'll get to the neuroscience. Okay, cool. Psychologically, the scientific definition of flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More okay. specifically, it's those moments of rapt attention and total absorption when you're so focused on the task at hand that everything else just vanishes. So concentration is totally locked down. Action and awareness start to merge. Sense of self disappears. Time passes strangely. The technical term is it dilates, means it either slows down, you get a freeze frame effect from anybody who's been in a car crash. More frequently, it speeds up and five hours pass by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. And uh, so that's flow uh, from a psychological standpoint. When you talk about neuroscience, um, what you have to really talk about is four things. You have to talk about neural anatomy, where in the brain something is taking place. And then you have to talk about networks because very rarely in the brain does anything take place at a specific spot. It's usually a network working together. Talk about neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, which are the two main signaling systems in the brain. And it's how the brain communicates with itself and the body. You asked a question about neuroelectricity. So okay. what we know about brainwaves and flow is flow sort of takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta. That's the baseline for flow. That said, because flow is an active state. It's a, you're, it's, it's a, it, people, Csikszentmihalyi, Godfather of Flow Psychology, uh, talks about it as every decision, every action flows seamlessly, effortlessly, perfectly from the last, right? So it's a, it's a decision-making state. And whenever we make a decision, um, and this is not my research, by the way, this is Dr. Leslie Shearland's work, uh, giving credit where credit was due. Um, he did a lot of the, the kind of core EEG work on flow. He was uh, he was with Red Bull for a long time. Um, okay. And uh, so he, you go through, you, you go into different brain waves for different parts of the decision-making cycle. So if you're in flow, your baseline is alpha theta, but every time you make a decision, right? Like I'm a skier and I'm in flow and I decide to turn left instead of right. When I make that decision, my brain goes through a cycle and you know it'll pop up to beta for a minute it'll go to gamma it'll go over here to alpha and blah blah, blah. the difference between peak performers and everybody else is most people when they pop out away from that alpha theta borderline they can't get back there peak performers can get back there very very quickly smoothly in okay. fact if you actually look at the eeg it looks flowy which is pretty funny. <laughs> Which is a good word for it then. So uh, one thing that came up for me, Stephen, uh, when you were talking about this, um, and I think I've experienced flow in, a, in <clears throat> many different ways, but I think in, in one of your books, you have The Rise of Superman, you have an example of a guy falling into a giant cave, and I forgot his name off the top of my head, but then he grabs the orange cable and he goes through all this hyper sense of flow to save his life, basically. And and so as he's falling down, you know, uh, actually he base jumped, if, if that's right. He base yes. jumped. In Potter, he was jumping into the Cave of Swallows in Mexico. He was yes. base jumping. His chute was wet. He didn't know it. And it only partially opened. And he, it was like a 250-foot fall. And there was an orange rope that a photographer who was there shooting, I think it was a National Geographic piece um and hung this orange rope lining the entire pit right top to bottom and the the shoot was over dean's head and it was and he got like out of the corner by he just saw orange and he the you know 
time had slowed totally down for him and he reached out and he grabbed the rope midair and literally burned all the skin off his hands, let go of the rope, grabbed it again, and he managed to arrest his fall. I think it was three feet from the bottom. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Really incredible. So so there's that that this seems like kind of a almost a hyper flow, but I guess things slow yeah, down. Yeah, so that's a I, I love you know, I this is my fault. I told those Rise of Superman stories because they were crazy, amazing examples of what flow makes possible. But the truth of the matter is most people experience flow at work. Right? We know we most people spend about five percent of their work life in flow, often without even knowing it. And that's because flow is a spectrum. Right, you can have micro flow. This is when I know. So flow has six core characteristics, and I named some of them earlier for you. So when psychologists measure flow, they are measuring these six core characteristics: that it's uninterrupted concentration in the present moment, uh, a sense of control over everything that you're doing, vanishing of self, time passing strangely, merger of action and awareness, so forth. So. Um, Microflow is when either a couple of those things show up or they all show up and they're dialed way down. Macroflow is when all those things show up at once and it's Dean Potter, time slowing down and him grabbing the rope and right, that's macroflow. And um, you know, it's it's downright mystical in its qualities in a sense. So most people, the one of the most common instances of flow, believe it or not, is middle managers in conversation at work. Um you know, it's two people sitting down to have a quick five-minute budget discussion in the hallway, and it turns into a, a full-blown hour-long brainstorming session, and they don't even know time is passing. Yeah. That happens all the time to people at work. Yeah, That's a micro-flow state. Got it. What would you say is the state of mind when things seem to happen, like synchronistically or almost serendipitously? Is that is that related to flow too, or is that... All right, so... Um, I hate answering this question because I'm a <laughs> rational materialist, but, yeah. here, but I do, I write about synchronicity a lot in my book, West of Jesus, which was the first book I wrote about flow. So here's a couple things you should know. Okay. When we are in flow, we have massive amounts of norepinephrine and dopamine in our system. These are performance enhancing chemicals. They drive focus. They're pleasure drugs, right? They're right. reward chemicals. Some of the, some of the best feelings on earth. In fact, romantic love, when we fall in love, is literally nothing more than norepinephrine and dopamine. So right. that cocktail. Flow is a bunch more neurochemicals, but that's part of flow. But the thing that these chemicals do that's really cool, if I was speaking technically, I'd say they tune signal-to-noise ratios. Fancy way of saying right. they amp up pattern recognition. When okay. these substances are in our system, we notice more patterns. So, by the way, there's a sweet spot because if I crank up the dopamine all the way and you're seeing patterns everywhere, well, suddenly you're a paranoid schizophrenic, right? right? So there's a sweet spot. But in between, you can – so this is why creativity spikes in flow. It depends on whose numbers you go by. Uh, we have a research project into flow and creativity with USC. Harvard's been doing some work. They do some work at the University of Sydney, a couple other places. But it's somewhere between 400 and 700%. It's a wow. huge spike in creativity. Enormous. Wow. And, um, and even cooler, uh, and this is Teresa uh, Amable's work at Harvard, she found that that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state sometimes by a day, maybe two. So really, like not only are you getting super creativity in the state, but you're getting some of that residual over the rest of your you know, next couple of days, which is really nice. cool. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is 
because you, your pattern recognition system is just super, super, super amplified. So you're noticing connections, right? That you didn't, you didn't mm. see before you aha moments are sort of everywhere. And, um, it's not, you know, I always say that, my, so there's an extreme skier named Scott Schmidt who used to hit a great saying about flow. Flow is, I always say that flow is short, the best shorthand definition for flow that I know of from a scientific point of view is a state of near perfect high speed decision making. That okay. said, emphasis on near perfect, not perfect. Scott Schmidt used to say this extreme skier used to say flow makes me feel like Superman up until the moment I'm not. <laughs> so like and, and you're laughing but i'll give you another example so i uh, we uh we tell people at, at, at our events for example never go shopping in flow because pat with pattern recognition amped all the way up you're going to look good in everything right you've got okay. a lot of feel-good neurochemistry coursing through your system so you're essentially very high and pattern recognition is all jacked up and you will buy <laughs> everything um and it's by the way i i have the same feeling so i think it's morally wrong there's a, in, in the self-help world, there are a lot of people who use a lot of different somewhat cultic techniques to bring people together, put them into flow states, and then sell them the upsell, the next version of the coaching seminar or whatever it is. Right. And this is really problematic for me, both because of the feel-good neurochemistry and the heightened pattern recognition and everything looking good, also because your prefrontal cortex uh, part of your brain that does long-term planning and decision-making is turned off in flow. Yeah. So you no longer have long-term planning and thinking, right? Your amygdala is less reactive. So you think money is a less scary issue to you. Pattern recognition all jacked up and you're high as a kite and they're selling <laughs> things to you. That's I, morally reprehensible as far as I can tell. And, and I can vouch for that. I'm pretty sure that I've purchased more than one thing in a state of flow that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> and oh, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done embarrassing things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I want to ask you, Stephen, like, um, first off, first question, I've got two questions about it, but first, what's your favorite way to get into flow? Writing and skiing. Nice. And what about some easy, simple ways that the that folks out there that are just listening to the podcast and they can do it on a regular daily basis that that's easy for them to get into flow. So they become more creative and yeah, it's, uh, there, so there is no easy. What there are okay. are 22 flow triggers, preconditions okay. that lead to more flow. All of these triggers essentially drive attention into the present moment because flow takes place when all of our attention is right here, right now. So that's what the triggers do. Um, they, they do this in various ways. So I start my writing day at four o'clock in the morning before the night before I've turned off my email. I've unplugged my phone. I've turned off my cell phone, turned it completely off. I've all my messages uh, are turned off and I have no lights in my office. So all I have is the text, the words on the page. I put things in focus view and that's literally like, and I write from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. And the research shows that for flow, the best thing you can do is block 90 to 120 minute blocks of uninterrupted concentration and, and spend that time, turn everything off and spend that time on your, on your primary task, right? Your, kind of your hardest task. That's first and foremost. You got to start there. 
Easy, easy, easy. Okay, um, I have some more to talk about, but let's jump into your new book, uh, the new book, Last Tangle in Cyberspace. Sounds like um, something that Quentin Tarantino could have came up with. I started reading the first few chapters after I heard you were coming on the podcast and got into it. It seems really cool, but um, tell the listeners, tell us uh, more about the book. I Last Tango in Cyberspace is a, uh, it's a near-term future thriller about future technology and the ramifications of future technology, um, the evolution and critical importance of empathy um, and sort of the ramifications of consciousness expansion in, uh, in an accelerated world. Um, it's a short version. It, it, the protagonist is a character named Lion Zorn and he is the first of his kind. He's an empathy tracker, an M tracker. And what this means is he has a expanded sense of empathy. His ability to feel empathy is much deeper than most people. So his, his empathy goes obviously through the entire human species, but it uh, goes into plants, animals, ecosystems. It also goes up into robots and questions of AI. And more interestingly for the, for the book and for the story, he uh, has the ability to kind of empathize at a cultural level. So he can sort of track cultural trends before they emerge, which is a useful skill to a certain kind of company. And yeah. Arctic Pharmaceuticals is exactly that company. And so they hire Lion to kind of M-track rumors about a, a new, uh, very deep countercultural psychedelic um, that they think has medical potential, that they think they can turn into a, to a, a drug uh, and, and productize. And they hire him to find it, and he very quickly uh, ends up discovering a gruesome murder, which turns the book into kind of a quasi-detective story that's sort of wrapped around a countercultural conspiracy theory uh, that is really an attempt, I think more than anything else, it's an attempt to really get a sense of what the world's going to be like five years from now with... Uh, with technology moving as quickly as it is. Now, you've written some pretty amazing and top-rated books, you know, regarding neuroscience and flow state, the cusp of information and, and global change and these sort of things. I'm curious, uh, why did you want to write a novel, but also just a novel that takes place five years in the future? So I'm trained as a novelist, actually. Okay. Um, I, I'm actually trained as a poet, of all things. Um, but I was a poet through college and then I went to grad school uh, in fiction writing. My first book is a novel. And uh, I, I, my, and I, I've t I wrote two more novels that are both sitting in drawers because they need a final edit and I don't think I'll ever publish them. Uh, and then I switched to uh, nonfiction uh, and sort of because I'd been a journalist for that point for about a decade and, and I just I fell in love with nonfiction. Uh, but I always knew I wanted to go back. And I have the, what, what it what. There are a lot of different reasons I wrote this book, but one of them is I've been writing a lot of books on cutting edge technology, abundance, right. bold, Tomorrowland, even in part stealing fire. Yeah. Um, and uh, because those books had to make sense, right? I had to tell you about one technology at a time, one innovation at a time. But the future isn't one tech or one innovation at a time. It's all that stuff together. And what, I was seeing in all this work. So Ray Kurzweil, head of engineering and AI at Google and, and really kind of the, the, the mad scientist when it comes to technological prediction and tracking growth rates technology and seeing where we're going. And he, he really doesn't miss. Um, he has 
said, uh, predicted that we are going to experience 20,000 years of technological change over the next century. This means we're going birth of agriculture to the birth of the internet twice in the next 81 years. Yeah. And when you really understand all these technologies, um, you can see how five years, like the world is radically, radically different, but it's really hard to hold in your head if I have to teach it to you one tech at a time. But, it, and, I, and, I, and I couldn't hold it in my head exactly, right? I was writing about all this stuff and I was like, all right, so I, if I write a novel though, I can build a world, put you in it, something we can see, feel, oh shit, this is what the future looks like. And, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's a, it's a stunningly fun way to convey a ton of information very, very quickly, right? And it's right. a novel. It's a thriller. It's a detective story. It's fun. It's a page turner, right? So I get to, uh, I get to kind of, I got to run an experiment for myself and kind of create this world and see what it was like. And I got to show it to a lot of other people who kept asking me, "Hey, you've written all these books about technology. What do you think's coming?" And there's no, like, I, there's no way I can do that. I can't talk for long enough to answer that question, but I can create a world and show it to you. That was, that was one of the really big impetuses for it. You know, it's, as I was reading it, something really interesting came up for me and also seeing another interview that you did previously a few years back. But when we read about this, uh, we feel like this is, of course, the future. It kind of reminded me of that Netflix series, I, Robot, or Robot, or something like that. But, you know, it feels like this is almost uh, in the future, but it's not really that far away. And almost, and it's almost like we're living in a lot of things are related to, to future and tech and things that people are doing today. And so... so two, the, yeah, two things to know. The book is set five years in the future. Right. Um, even though I don't, I never, I don't think I tell you that. Uh, you won't know this till you get to the end of the book and read the afterward, but I'm going to spoil the afterward for you, which is <laughs> with the exception of the, set, the, the the drug that's at the center of the book, um, and even that loosely, every bit of technology in that book is real. It yeah. exists in the world today in a lab somewhere, or it's starting to get rolled out, but just not here. So um, everything, there's nothing, there's nothing made up, which is insane. Yeah, and it could sound scary or fearful or odd or even foreign, um, but then when we get to that point and the technology is part of everyday life, it's no longer a scary well, that's, thing. That's exactly – so there's a scene uh, – I, in my future, I have a, I, I, I see these mashup cuisines. So they're in an Asian Yiddish fusion restaurant. Um, and the menu is holographically projected out of the table, right? Yeah. And that's what's really interesting to me is not, oh my God, look, it's VR. Oh, we have holography now. It's, I'm going out to dinner and this is the way the menu shows up. It's just a hologram. It's a hologram menu. It's not a big deal. It's not Star Wars. Let me project Princess Leia and make a... No, it's just like, it's the mundane. It's the everyday. And that's what's so interesting to me about it. And if you think of how people... Think of back in the 50s, how people predicted what the future was going to be like, or even back to the future, you know, and and it seems like a, such a foreign idea, but then it becomes our normal part of life. And it helps exp- it helps us live more convenient, easier lives. And it's, it's, it's great. So, so it's not, you know, it's like these things come up and I think they, they bring some fear up for people sometimes, but I, I, 
I think that, you know, it's not something to be feared because we step into those realms and all of a sudden they become part of our culture and they help our lives in some way. But it's, it's interesting because, you know, you talk in the book also about artificial intelligence and a lot of people are scared um, shitless of artificial intelligence, of what it's going to do, taking over, you know, Armageddon's going to happen. And all these robots are going to take over humanity. And, and I think Elon Musk said on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast that, you know, that the, the, we don't spend much time thinking about the apes. Will AI spend much time thinking about us? Right. So um, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on AI uh, becoming conscious. How do you know an AI hasn't already woken up? Right. Right. Because let's, uh, this is the way I always explain it. Facebook is essentially a giant AI, right? Enormous. If I was Facebook and I woke up, the first thing I would do is try to figure out who the fuck I am. And I'd read the posts on Facebook and I'd very quickly (laughs) learn that humans are terrified about an AI waking up. So I would freaking hide. So that's, (laughs) that's point one. I just want to start there. Point two um, and I have, you know, Elon was, was one of the primary stars in, in bold, my book bold. I have yeah. mad, mad respect for, for, for Elon. Um, but everybody's fears about AI, Ray Kurzweil, Elon, they're all based around this concept. You call it strong AI, which is the idea that consciousness is related to power. So we get our circuits to a certain level of power, the AI is going to wake up. And that idea does not track with a lot of what we know about consciousness and neuroscience. It just doesn't seem to work this way. A lot of people really believe consciousness is an emergent property that emerges out of a certain level of complexity in the system and not, and power is just one variable in that complexity, right? So there are a lot of people who don't hold to the idea that it's going to happen as quickly as people think it is going to happen um, anywhere near as quickly. So that's point two. Point three is, and this is the point that I really am trying to make in Last Tango in Consciousness, or Last Tango in Cyberspace, which is what do we actually mean by consciousness? Because the question gets very peculiar both up and down the chain, meaning Animals, dogs, for example, have essentially all the same emotions as humans, all the same basic basic emotions, all the same social emotions. In fact, many of their social emotions are better developed than our own. Um, And they have the intelligence of roughly three to four-year-old kids. So next time you go to drop your dog off at the pound because you don't want him anymore and you want to go on vacation with your boyfriend instead, I want you to realize that you're essentially killing a three-year-old child. That's what you're doing. Same emotion, same intelligence. You're killing a three-year-old child because you want to go on vacation with your boyfriend. And that happens as somebody who lives on the front lines of dog rescue all the time, right? So that's, that's a tricky proposition. Holy shit. Wow. Maybe animals conscious they deserve some rights well okay plants here's where shit gets really wackadoodle (laughs) plants will exhibit empathy you can plants process information with the exact same neurochemicals that humans process information with if you give plants a human anesthetic you will knock them out right 
and it goes on and on, right? Plant neuroscience is really wild. And um, there's all kinds of signaling. There's all kinds of communications. So like you got to stop and say, well, wait a minute. Plants are conscious. Maybe. Do they deserve rights? Do they like, do we recognize them as entities? What, what do we, what do we do here? And the same questions are going to start to be asked about robotics and AIs. And it's the, the, the thing that people also miss here. And this is, again, I think this is a point I make in last tango a lot is whether or not an AI wakes up is almost secondary to the fact that we are going to come to a point very quickly, five to 10 years, where we can't tell that our technology is not actually awake and not actually conscious. Um, I'll give you really strange examples. So Uber is rolling out autonomous cars, right? And autonomous taxis. And we're, we're going to have them all over our streets by 2019 to 2020. And they, they, they have LIDAR detectors on, on top of their, uh, on the roof. And they're, you know, scanning like 1.5 million data points a second. And one of the things that they have been programmed to look for is human emotion. So mm. the, the LIDAR has been programmed to detect, to be able to read facial expressions and to be able to, uh, depends on how the system is built, but you can do this on a vein in the human forehead or take your pick. Um, you can get a lot of biophysical face signals and they need to know, for example, if you're an autonomous car and you're driving down the road, if there's an angry pedestrian a hundred yards down the road, that angry pedestrian is much more likely to dart into traffic than a calm pedestrian, right? So you have right. to be able to detect this. So the cars are being built to understand and read human emotion better than in fact we do. On top of that, the cars are being designed around neural nets, which means their brains are built like our brains, right? Works the same, works the same way, just works in silicon. And you can port between the two. There's a Raymond McCulley has this great speech he shows online where they, they took, they recorded all the neuronal fly, firings in a worm's brain, all the connectome of the worm's brain, and they ported it into a robot. And the robot is literally running a worm's brain inside the robot. So this stuff gets is, is portable. <laughs> okay. But my point is that um, with emotional processing, uh, with neural nets underneath it, um, with natural language recognition, with all this stuff, it's going to get very hard to tell that these things are not awake. I, uh, in Stealing Fire, we write about Ellie, the world's first AI shrink, a uh, psychologist built by yeah. the Department of Defense and guys at USC, right, to detect depression and early warning signs of PTSD in soldiers and uh, because they couldn't scale up enough psychologists and sociologists to meet with everybody coming back from combat to figure out, are they in psychological trouble? Do they need help? You know, could we stem the tide of soldier suicide? So they built an AI. Soldiers like talking to the AI more than they like talking to real shrinks. <laughs> I had a session with her and it feels like you're talking to a shrink. And this yeah. was five or six years ago. The tech has moved so fast since then. So like, it's going to get very hard to tell what's awake, what's not awake, and, and what, like, how do we start drawing these lines around kind of respect and rights and all kinds of stuff? It's, it's, it's a very peculiar future. Is there anything that you fe fear about? What's the thing you fear most about AI? 
I have one main concern. And, and it is it's very pedestrian in a sense. Um, so there is there's going to be a gap between the time AI and robots really start kind of coming for our jobs and when we can retrain people up into new jobs. Now, the really cool thing is we can do stuff in VR with accelerated learning and flow and a bunch of things um, that allow us to retrain people and skills very, very quickly. But there's going to there's going to be a gap. Um, and that's, that, that's the one thing that, you know, that, that worries me is that, um, the world feels pretty fragile to me right now. And a lot of the crises that we're facing environmental crises and things along those lines, um, that really need of our attention that really do scare me, you know, the environmental crisis scare me a whole lot more than AI. AI doesn't scare me very much. The only thing that scares me is that, if technological unemployment actually does show up and it's an, it's a big if it's a big if, and I can tell you a lot of reasons why I think it's not going to happen, but if it does, um, and in, in this gap between, before we get kind of the retraining software kind of dialed in, um, I think that like, there's a lot of chaos there. Um, and that, so that worries me a little bit. There's, I think the biggest fear for most people when they think about AI and, and these robots, you know, becoming our shrinks and we're interacting with them every day is that they can take over or will take over. Do you think that's a, a, an actual legitimate thing that could possibly happen? I think everything is a legitimate thing that could possibly <laughs> happen, right? Like, first of all, if the multiverse is real, it already happened. Right. Okay. I'm not necessarily saying I, I go in for the multiverse as, as, as my as my unified theory of everything, but you got to consider it at least. Um, so I, I don't. Honest to God. I have a rule. If I'm not going to solve the problem. I don't care about the problem. I have very specific battles I am here to wage. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, I always tell people I came to build cathedrals, but that requires a certain amount of focus on, on certain things. There are problems that I am on the front lines of. Those are things that I've, you know, spent decades and decades on and continue to do, continue to work on. If it's advancing flow science and research, I believe fundamentally that if we're going to solve the problems that we face, it's going to not just require the largest cooperative effort in history and a bunch of cool technology. It's going to require everybody in that cooperative effort performing at their very best. So what I can do in these particular problems is I can fight on the front lines of environmental and animal rights issues um, and everywhere I possibly can. And I can decode flow and help us recode humans so we can go forth and tackle these challenges. But those are the fights I fight. I have a, you know, I, I, as a journalist, I would cover the drug war as well. That's something I'm passionate about. I think it's just wrong on all sides. So there are a couple other fights that I have, but I, I, I pick my battles and, and I stick to them. So like you're asking me questions, maybe they're interesting puzzles to me, but I'm not on the front lines of it. I don't. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm not going to lose sleep over that one. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> um, I know this is something you talk about in Last Tango also, but also something you're passionate about and you've done a lot of research in. And, and you talked about this as well in Stealing Fire, which uh, was my favorite book I read in 2018, by the way. Thank um, you. That's nice of you to say. Yeah, it was an amazing book. And so the future of psychedelics and consciousness expanding technologies. And um, this is something that I, I b- battle with, but I know that I think you said this in Stealing Fire or quoted this in Stealing Fire. Tim Ferriss said that um, the billionaires from San, from you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area that he interacts with, very few have, few of them have ever experienced or ever uh, very few of them have not um, done some psychedelics and they do that to expand their consciousness to um, look for different ways to create to, uh, new technology and solve problems and this sort of thing. I've also heard I, I think his name is Dr. Daniel Amen who is also a neuroscientist as well talk a lot about the effects uh, and he's done like some 90,000 brain scans the effects of different drugs and and uses of alternative substances on our minds and how they've damaged damaged the brain over the years and why he doesn't touch any of those so i'm curious to hear your aspect of it and in your thought like where's the boundary for that you know i know it's played a a major role because even guys like steve jobs i think he dropped some acid in the 70s which helped build a map which helped you know get ideas to build apple and he told bill gates that he should have done some drugs too so 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 what's your thoughts on that steven so i i'm not uh i'm not qualified to comment on uh dr amen's work uh I really, I, I don't, I don't know much about it. I've heard about it, but I don't know okay. much about his work, so I can't comment at all on that. Um, I have a research partnership with Robin Cart Harris's lab at Imperial College in London, where they've done kind of all the foundational fMRI studies on, oh, this is what psilocybin does to the brain. This is what LSD. This is what DMT. This is what MDMA does to the brain. Um, and uh, we are doing the very first comparative study between flow and psychedelics. Um, okay. And uh, just uh, really basic level stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You, your question went all over the place. Let yeah, me sorry start about that. By <laughs> say, let me start by saying I'm not a huge psychedelic fan. I think okay. MDMA is phenomenal as a relationship tune-up drug, as a drug that allows you to feel intimacy and love at a really deep level. And I think, you know, I find it can be periodically useful. Uh, I, I've done more psychedelics than anybody I can think of. And uh, <laughs> I've learned, I've learned very little. I, you know, I, so I'm, so I always, and I always tell people, and this is where this is where I think things have gotten massively irresponsible. Yes, you can use these are fantastic substances uh, for amplifying creativity and insight and those sorts of things. But when you come down, what you learned is the starting point for research. It is not grounds to change your life. Like. Oh, wow. I learned this really cool thing when I was tripping and now I'm going to leave my wife and move to Peru and find my consciousness by doing ayahuasca every day for six months. Right? Like, no, no, really, no, not going to do that. Not a wise idea. 
starting point for further research and inquiry, not reasons to change your life. And I'm seeing a lot of reasons to change your life. And I'm also like, what started out as interesting with psychedelics has now gotten gussied up with all kinds of nonsense and everybody's a shaman healer <laughs> wants to take me on an ayahuasca yeah. cacao serum. Fuck you. <laughs> God, shut up. You're a guy on drugs wearing funny clothes. Yeah. Uh, really. I, so like, I'm really like, they are fantastic substances for healing certain things for therapy. They can be useful for triggering creativity. Um, they need to be, they, they either need to be respected or you just need to know, man, you're just a hedonist doing a lot of drugs. So like all the other rules that apply when you're a hedonist doing a lot of drugs should apply here, right? Like I just, it's, it's massively overhyped. Um, I, you know, I, at the Flow Research Collective, we we very clearly are, we do this one study with Imperial College, but I, I'm interested in the neurobiology of flow. And the main reason is this. If I know how to hack flow, I don't require a substance or a technology to put myself in a state of peak performance. And I don't, like I've been in a lot of situations where I have to perform at my absolute best or I'm going to die and I didn't have time to, oh, hold on, let me take this drug and let's let it take effect. And but do you happen to have any ask? You know what I mean? Like, no, yeah. that sounds like a bad idea to me. <laughs> so um, for a lot of reasons, like I'm passionate about those substances, but I just, they bring out very fuzzy headed thinking. You know, Robin Card Harris, who we work with, says that they're really good because they shake the snow globe. And that's the point. Like they really do. They scramble the brain. They fire. They make all kinds of new connections and they really exhaust your brain. So there's a refractory recovery period built in on the back end and it's a vacation from reality. And when you are really stuck, when you are really burnt out, what you actually need is a profound shift of consciousness to reset. You need that vacation from reality. You can get it through taking a vacation in Hawaii, you can get it through taking a set. There's lots of options, right? Psychedelics are just one. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, I, what I'm seeing now is just like ridiculous irresponsibility and just a lot of people doing, doing drugs and calling it like consciousness work or peak performance work or whatever. And they're just doing drugs. Yeah. And yeah, I, 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 you know what I mean? Like I take drugs and I'm a little dumber and a little flirtier. And that's like, I, you know what I mean? Like I, I, you, some people take drugs and they talk to Norse gods. I don't have that experience. So I can't speak to that experience. I'm just like, you know, flirtier and dumber than normal, which is, you know, not particularly pleasant. So I try not to do it in public. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I've, I've noticed this overhype, especially, you know, things like ayahuasca and, and, People say, oh, I need to go to the, the Amazon and find myself again. And and I lived in Peru for seven months, and I <laughs> did um, I did three. I went to the Sacred Valley and did three ayahuasca ceremonies. And, um, and Come on, the they're not one, ceremonies. You're doing drugs uh, in the jungle. <laughs> Just doing drugs in the jungle. Okay, that's what Start I did, there. yeah. And, and 
I uh, was going to go back and I was going to do a fourth one. But one thing it, a lot of people don't talk about when you hear all the hype about this is the dark side of it. And so the reason why I actually went to the village to do a fourth one and I had knots on in my stomach and, and I was, you know, just kind of sweating and I just was thinking, you know, this is a bad idea. But the reason that all came up is because a few weeks before in the north of Peru, um, some guy stuck a feather in his hat, called himself a shaman, and he used to give people ayahuasca and then go watch TV. Well, a kid that was like 19 years old came down and he was on, I think, pres- prescription medication. He and, and he had ayahuasca while he was on his medication, taking his medication, and he died. And then the shaman and the shaman's assistant buried the kid's body. And, and there's things like this that happen in that world. And, and when people have this overhype about stuff like this, you know, you're going to find God, you're going to find consciousness. And that being said, some people have ex- really gotten amazing benefits out of it, but nobody's talking about the dark side of the things that, that, it, that can really seriously affect somebody's life into and, and death. Yeah. And then after- I mean, it's, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, creepy underbelly to all this stuff and there always has been um, yeah <clears throat> and um the drug i mean you know going all the way back to william james you know we talk about it in stealing fire but one of the things you know you're when you when you take these substances your prefrontal cortex turns off right your sense of self right. disappears right what's really strange is when it turns back on and yourself comes back your ego which has been turned off suddenly comes back magnified right you the experiences you have are so authoritative and Mm. singular you come back thinking god is talking specially to you and you have a message for people right and um and everybody has that experience right Right. and i'm i i so i see a lot of that like you know people with really crazy egos for reasons i'm not i i don't quite understand yeah Um, yeah, and then they get addicted to it, right? They get addicted well, to it. Well, none that of those. So psychedelics are non-addictive, but in an emotional way, you know, they they think they need that in order to get X, Y, or Z. Well, so first of all, let's be clear. Okay. If you need that to get X, Y, or Z, if that's right, if that's if that is what works for you, fantastic. Do more, like more power to you, right? Just you, you just need to all these things it's it's not either or it's we have to when you're working with flow you have to be just as careful flow is underpinned by five of the most potent pleasure drugs the brain can produce when we do studies we find that people prefer flow to every other experience on earth period these are incredibly potent and addictive and powerful states why do you get a 500% boost in motivation and flow because of addictive neurochemistry but if you have a high flow job, say you've, you know, launched startups are filled with flow and, you know, suddenly your startup stabilizes and it's not as flowy as before, there's a big crash on the back end, right? You're mm-hmm. addicted to this thing that you suddenly can't get more of. When Navy SEALs come off, stop being SEALs, when professional action adventure sport athletes stop being action adventure sport athletes, the drop is very, very hard. And it's not just, you're not just coming off like pleasure drugs flow um, and there's copious amounts of research on this. It doesn't really correlate so much to happiness. What it really correlates to is meaning and overall life satisfaction. So uh, one of the reasons we have such 
difficulty with soldier suicide is they're very high flow jobs um, mm -hmm. with a lot of meaning made amplified by flow and people come back into their regular lives and all that meaning goes away and all that addictive neurochemistry goes away and you've got suicide. Yeah. That's, right. That's what, that's where it goes. Um, so all this stuff, I always say that like nobody wants to talk about this out loud because they don't like these terms, but like when we're talking about a habit, right? A foundation of all high performance is habits. Habits are just addictions, right? All you've done when you've got a really great habit is you've automatized a process and you've underlaid it with addictive neurochemistry. So you're compelled to do it. That's a habit. We right. function by addiction. Anything in life is addiction management. And nobody likes talking about that because it's tricky and scary and complicated and, and, and real life adult stuff. And, it, and it's hard to legislate around that stuff and it's hard to think about it. And it requires a lot more responsibility, but that's just our biology. Do you think psychedelics are something that, that's going to be continued to use? And you think there'll be more leniency in the future? I think and, they're, and that, they're phenomenal. I mean, first of all, on the therapeutic side, they are cures for incurable conditions, right? right. I mean, the FDA has fast-tracked MDMA uh, and psilocybin for treatment of PTSD in soldiers. They've fast-tracked it for treatment of depression and anxiety. This is one out of 10 Americans suffering yeah. those conditions, right? This is, so we're seeing, this is all on the therapeutic side, very, very mainstream. On the high performance side, that's still to come, but we are also, I mean, you know, what's going to happen in the future? So this is low hanging fruit for both AI and quantum computing is drug discovery. It's what these technologies are built for. They're great at it. We are also, as you know from reading Stealing Fire, building 3D chemical printers. Lee Cronin is building one in mm -hmm. Scotland, at the University of Scotland, or Glasgow, I think. Um, and th so this is, a, it's a chemistry set, right? It, it, it starts with the periodic table and it can print you any molecule you want, any chemical you want. Synthetic biology is giving us the same capabilities from a different way in. My point is that like, you know, this is no longer backyard chemistry. This is, I, you know, we have, everybody's got a, 2018 or smartphone or future has AI chips already built in. So like you can do this stuff on your smartphone, you go to Rigetti computing and there's a quantum computer. Uh, you can download their interface and suddenly you can be doing drug discovery on their quantum computer. And we've got a 3d drug printer. That's a couple years away. If you don't think we're going to be using this to create all kinds of new consciousness, exploring psychedelics, you're out of your mind. And I'm really excited. We're going to learn some amazing, amazing, amazing things about the human mind we could not learn any other way, which is not to say there won't be absolute disasters along the way. <laughs> and something else you talk about in, in the last tango is empathy and understanding empathy. And this is something that keeps coming up. Um, we have people talking about empathy on the show, people trying to understand it. You mentioned AI as reading, you know, understanding human emotions better than us humans. How can can and actually you know meditation and getting into flow state also i think is something that helps people connect um, and be more empathetic how are uh, what are some ways that you would recommend or that you practice to be a more empathetic human being and to grow yourself well okay so i'm really a like if there's a point in last hango cyberspace it's empathy for all which is empathy for all humans, for sure, but also empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. 
which I think is fundamental to our survival. Um, and I think your other guests are right. Empathy is the secret weapon, right? It literally allows the brain to take in novel information um, and, and see things that you can't normally see. So it, it, empathy is a consciousness expanding drug. It literally has an impact on perception um, and allows you to take in information you can't see. I, so I, when, I, when I'm dealing with people, I have a sort of a rule um, that uh, I can, if you're curious, I can tell you the story behind it, but I won't because it's long, but. Uh, <laughs> How long? I don't know. Is it a good one? Five oh, minutes. Okay. So, okay, it's a funny story. Okay, tell it. I am in Madagascar. I am in a town called Andrinkatra, which is the most recently opened national park in the world. It's in the most remote part of Madagascar. The road has just gone in and calling it a road. Let's just say on the drive there, it was in a Jeep. I got bounced out of the Jeep. I was going out the window because the road was so bad. We hit like a four foot pothole. Um, <laughs> my photographer who was with me grabbed my legs and I actually fell back into the window and cracked a rib. So I had a broken rib when this was all taking place. But so we get down to this remote outpost and they've just got one sort of structure in this national park that they just opened. And I am with, um, I'm with a photographer and I'm with a woman named Amanda Wright. Pat Wright is sort of the patron saint. She's a MacArthur Genius Award winning primatologist, sort of the patron saint of Madagascar. So Amanda is her daughter and she's, she's with us. Um, she's about 21 and 22 at this point. So a lot of people have gathered to, to meet her or see her. And, and, and in, so we end up showing up. I got a broken rib. We're all sick as dogs. We've just driven forever to get here. And there's a ritual dinner around this big table taking place. And there is a tribal chief there, very proud Malagasy man who has come out of the jungle. And for sure, the group around this table, like I'm, we're the first white people he's, he's seen, right? Like, <laughs> wow. and, um, and there's a bunch of other people. And to, so I'm sitting across the table from, from the chief and on the way, this is complicated, but on the way there, my, my photographer and I have known each other a long time and he cracked a joke about particle physics of all things. Okay. So we're at dinner and I'm sitting across this table from this tribal chief and Miguel, my photographer sort of like whispers in my ear, somebody makes, says something and the, the particle physics joke becomes relevant and Miguel says the punchline again and I start laughing. And suddenly the chief is looking at me and really pissed. Oh. <laughs> now, here's what you have to understand. He speaks Malagash. I speak English. So he has to, he actually doesn't even speak Malagash. He speaks something else that has to get translated into Malagash, which then has to get translated into French, which then goes into English to me. <laughs> right? Yeah. So he's pissed. But what the fuck did you just say goes through like seven languages to get to it. Right? <laughs> And what I have to, the answer is, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, he made a joke. Well, what the hell the joke's about? Uh, it's about particle physics. What the fuck is particle physics? Okay, so how do you explain particle physics to a guy who's been living in the jungle in Madagascar in pretty much the most, most remote spot you can get to? Right. And so I say, well, all right, you know how... Inside a tree, on the outside, there's, there's bark, and you go inside, and then there's, you know, 
the rings and there's smaller components inside the rings are, are slivers of wood and inside the and it goes on and smaller and smaller and smaller and I said at the bottom there are these tiny invisible things called particles they're the smallest things there and they're the fundamental thing that make up everything else essentially is what I say or something thereof and this goes through the four translators over to him and he gets all excited and talks for like seven minutes, right? And then like it all comes back to me through the four translators. And what comes back to me is like, oh yeah, we have an ancient song about that. We call it this and blah, blah, blah. And at that moment in time, I just came to a realization that there are really no stupid people. There are yeah. just people who speak different languages. And if you can yeah. find the right language, you can pretty much talk to anyone. And so I talk to anybody and I'm massively curious and I kind of always assume that whoever you are, there's one thing you're great at, you're passionate about and you're fantastic at. And I want to know what it is. And I want, and, and that like, to me, that curiosity, that like realization that, wow, you know, something amazing that I don't know. And I want to figure it out. That serves me well. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I try to, you know, extend empathy to, into plants and animals and ecosystems as well. Um, and that requires kind of the same kind of, of shifts, right? But you, you just got to, I, I don't know, I come at it that way. Obviously, meditation works. Um, we know this. We know flow works as well. Um, and by the way, so do psychedelics, right? All of these, all of these substances or all of these techniques uh, do expand empathy over time. That's amazing. What are some ways like on a, just a regular basis? So one thing that I do to really connect with others is just ask them about themselves. But do you have any other little tricks or methods that you use to to be more empathetic or connect with other other people so you can understand them just a little bit better? Well, you're operating from a hypothesis that I actually like people. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> I may doubt your premise a little. Okay. I, I prefer animals and ecosystems quite often. Um, okay. And I spend a great deal of time by myself. Um, but no, I, like, I always lead with curiosity. That to me is, and, and, and by the way, there's neurobiology there. So anxiety and excitement are essentially the same signal neurobiologically. Right right? All that's different is the frame you build around it. And it's really easy to turn anxiety into excitement. And one of the easiest ways to do it is through curiosity. So the brain is sort of hardwired to do us, them divides, right? Um, and we do this fundamentally uh, and automatically. And there's nothing you can do about it, right? And uh, okay. uh, that's, how, that's just how we're hard, hardwired, right? Uh, the, the brain, this is also in Last Tango, right? We have fundamental life detection machinery built into us, right? And one of the things the brain is always doing is it's, it's looking for other signs of life. And as soon as it finds one, it asks a couple of simple questions, right? Is this thing like me or is it not like me? And if it's like me, maybe I can fuck it. And if it's not like me, maybe I should run away or maybe I should kill it and eat it. Right. Like that's your brain is doing that at a really basic level at all times. Um, and, you know, we have found ways to expand, you know, like used to mean family. And then it meant, you know, and, and we expand that out and we keep expanding it out. That's what's really cool about uh, humanity. And that's one of the things I really like. And this is not, you know, Robin Wright wrote about it in non zero. That was the first time I saw anybody talk about this. But empathy expands over time. Right. 
uh, we, we now extend the boundary of equality and respect and dignity pretty wide comparatively yeah. to where we were two, 300 years ago. Um, even 50 years ago. Even 50 years ago. And it like this happened, this, this happens naturally. This is really interesting. And I, you know, to me, yeah, we're not going to go there. That's a, <laughs> I was going to take you down a Darwinian rabbit hole, but I'm not going to take you there. <laughs> I'm going to shut up now. I know something that I wanted to touch on uh, briefly here just for a couple of minutes is, and something I find really interesting and in, in learning more and more about is space tourism. Also something that you talk about in the last tango as well. I think like I was just watching another Netflix show called, I think it was our rock and the astronauts and interviews, a bunch of astronauts that have gone into space and then seen the world from a different point of view. And Carl Sagan also has a good bit on this where he talks about the pale blue dot and how, you know, all the war wars and murders and vengeance and jealousy and everything has occurred in this little blue dot. If you're looking at the earth from Saturn and so where do you think that, where do you, where do you think space tourism is going to take us over the next, let's just say like five decades, 50 years or so? So um, I think we're going to see legitimate space tourism over the next five years, okay. right? I think the Bigelow Space Hotel, it's an inflatable hotel uh, that goes into low earth orbit. So you want to have your honeymoon in space, right? Um, Virgin Galactic will take you there and you can blah, blah, blah. I think we'll see that next five to 10 years. I think um, we'll see some kind of larger space station start to emerge. The real unlocking move is a combination of asteroid mining and nanotech. Mm. If we can capture asteroids in space and tow them to our space station and take them apart uh, with nano dissemblers, and use that at raw material as 3D printing feedstock, we can print spaceships in space. We can print rockets in space. We can, and, and this is a big deal, right? The hardest thing about space yeah. is getting off the Earth's gravity well, right? It's $10,000 a pound to get out of the Earth's gravity well. But once you're out in space, no gravity, you can do a whole lot more things. Um, um, so those technologies start to become the, the unlocking move. And I think by your 50 year time horizon, we'll start seeing those things maybe a lot earlier. I mean, right, as Peter Diamandis is an asteroid mining company, they're, they're not sitting on their hands, they're making progress. Um, so maybe it'll be sooner, but I think 50 years is a safe time horizon to say, hey, I think this is, that's around the time we'll really start exploring. And I think we'll have a moon colony and a Mars colony by then. What's, what's the thing that excites you the most about that idea of space tourism? It's an interesting question. I, so what excites, honestly, it provides a solution to the thing that scared, that keep, what keeps me up at night? Population. Does it? Uh, oh yeah. Overpopulate. Like, because I care about plants, animals, and ecosystems, and I know that the calamity humanity cannot survive of everything that we're facing right now. If you talk to scientists and say, what scares you the most? They're going to tell you the biodiversity crisis. And the reason is just that the web of life supports everything else. And um, as it starts to go, everything goes. And I could go into massively long detail, but um, we don't have a population problem at a global level uh, right now because, you know, population is decreasing. It's very, very clear that when you give 
women rights and access to birth control, a little bit of education and clean water, population starts to drop very, very quickly. And it, you know, and it goes to a, to, to a sustainable rate. Um, but we don't know what the carrying capacity of the earth is. And some people have it as low as 2 billion. Um, and 9 million is certainly scary. 9 billion is certainly scary high for not collapsing ecosystems completely. So the uh, overview effect, which is what you were talking about, people looking back at earth and kind of realizing, oh my God, one, one planet, one people, right? Um, that's really powerful. I don't think we're going to get enough people into space for that to matter uh, in that time frame. But I do, well, I mean, you know what's the coolest thing about it is because really the race to space is Elon Musk versus Jeff Bezos, <laughs> yeah. right? And those guys have such enormous egos and they're so committed to this stuff. They've got them, they, the only, their vision matches their egos and that's fantastic. Um, and what that means is pretty good shot. You and I get to go into space in our lifetime at a price we can afford. I mean, that's the thing that I'm most excited about. That is the cool. hell doesn't want to go into space. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Spring break on the moon. <laughs> Steven, I have a couple questions outside of the subjects around Last Tango before we wrap up, but I was just curious, if there, is there anything, anything else you want to say about your new book, Last Tango in Cyberspace, before we move on to those questions? No, jump into your questions. We talked about it plenty. Okay, cool. Buy it. Um, buy now. Buy multiple buy copies. Now. Dozens. Buy now. Buy, buy. Thousands. <laughs> Nothing says I love you like Last Tango in Cyberspace. Yes, but get into flow state and buy. <laughs> okay, so any tips on productivity? Something that we talk a lot about um, in the podcast is being more productive. And of course, getting into flow state has really helped me in my life. And I teach a lot of people how to get into flow state and to help their productivity. But um, actually, let me just ask you this directly. Um, what what was does your routine look like for you to produce really great, high-quality content on a regular basis? So... If I am not traveling, I am always doing the exact same thing. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I write till 8 a.m. I hike my dogs in the backcountry for a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. I eat some food. I write for, or I, I do, I usually do flow research collective work or, you know, other, other stuff till about noon one, take a 20 to 40 minute nap get up to another writing session. Then I either do an editing uh, twice a week. I have an editor I work with. If I'm not doing an editing session, uh, I will go to the gym and lift weights and work out and come back and have some kind of active recovery protocol that usually for me is a, is a, is a, is a long sauna. I do some breath work meditation stuff in, in the sauna. Um, and then I read and watch something, learn something and go to bed and do it again. And twice a week minimum, I hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. And nice. that's what I do. And sometimes I travel and have, you know, have adventures, but I, I rarely, I, I travel to ski, surf, rock climb, sea animals or work. Um, and that's what I, this I, is very simple. I do okay. six things in my life essentially and nothing more. I like that. When you are traveling, 
How do you manage that? I am very protective. I try to be protective of my sleep on the road if I can be. Um, and I mostly, the only thing I do on the road consistently is I always get to a gym. I always work out. Um, that's the most important thing for me when I'm on the road and everything else is I'm, I'm, you know, I try to, I have well, the other rule I have is when I'm on the road, I never work. I only read, I do the work I'm there to do, um, which is give a speech or attend to me, you know, take your pick, um, run an experiment, but, uh, I do no other work, but I read incessantly. So I'll take a three day trip, right? I'll go someplace overnight to give a speech and I'll come back and I'll have read five or six books. Nice. Um, so that's, I mean, that's just how I, how I do it. I'm like, if I'm traveling, I'm reading. If I'm standing in line at the airport, I'm reading. If I'm waiting to have frozen yogurt at the airport, I'm reading. If I'm on a plane, I'm reading. If I'm waiting in line to, for my Uber to come, I'm reading. Like I just, that's what I do. I like it. <clears throat> so you mentioned breath work and meditation um, in your regular routine. I do quite a bit of, well, I meditate daily and do quite a, quite a bit of uh, Wim Hof on a regular basis and have seen amazing results from that, especially when I travel too, actually. But I'm curious, what's the type of breath work and, and meditations that you do? I do, um, usually do about 10 minutes of box breathing followed by, um, a, a number of rounds of breath of fire, what you would call Wim Hof breathing. Um, okay. sometimes I'll do some breath holds. And then if I, if that was, if depending on how, revved up or not like if that actually really calmed me down i will close with a open senses meditation i don't there's really interesting research that says if you're trying to train up creativity focus meditation actually works against you trains the brain to think convergently and not divergently and you need open senses vipassana style let stuff in don't judge it um to really train up creativity so that tends to be what i do um so and and I will, and, I, and I'll go, I'll do that for about six months and then I'll do six months of a mantra meditation and I'll go back to that. That's interesting. So you're saying, um, meditation with, uh, so focus meditation. So essentially a visualization practice has is shown Not a visualization practice, a, uh, breath work practice, focus on no, no, your no. breath, but um, you were focus saying on this, focus on this candle, focus on this mantra. Right. But you were saying that the, the focus meditation or what yeah, type of very, meditation? So it, it trains up, it trains up a lot of really great cognitive, cognitive skills, right? Focus, um, right. attention and, and, and convergent logical decision-making, all that stuff goes up and it goes up fast. Um, but it trains down divergent outside the box, connecting far flung ideas together, uh, thinking, uh, it okay. works against that. So, uh, the, the way to train up divergent thinking is an open senses meditation. Got it. Okay. So that's what I thought you meant when you were talking about a focused meditation. So if you close your eyes and do a sort of meditation and you think about the desired outcome, right. That you want, like, I want to create a seven figure business by the end of the year, or I want my book to have, you know, uh, 10 million, 10 million. Yeah. Buy. So you're playing with stuff that comes out of the secret that I don't buy. Um, okay. And I don't, and I don't buy it because, um, and I think it's actually, I think it's, I think you're working against yourself because what you're actually trying to do there is tune the goal directed system, um, in a very specific way. And, uh, and that can be very effective, but here's the thing about the goal directed system, which is 
we have built-in bullshit detectors. So if you are making minimum wage and you are trying to say, I will have a seven-figure income next year, your brain is going bullshit, bullshit, bullshit <laughs> the whole time, right? Uh -huh. Even at a subconscious level, you're actually working against yourself. You have to go, you can only stretch to what is the edge of plausible to you. And there's like, if you read Rise of Superman, this is the banister effect, right? That's the science underneath it. Um, but you can, so people get them, so people get themselves a lot into a lot of trouble trying to visualize their way into their dream life. Now, you're, what you're trying to do is train up the pattern recognition system to take in different information, right? That's what you're attempting to do because all of this, what ends up happening is it all comes down to perception. And here's what I mean. Brain takes in 400 billion bits of information a second. Consciousness is 2,000 outputs. Okay. So what makes up the bulk of those 2,000 outputs? Well, a lot of it is fundamental safety and security stuff. A lot of it is, is are you like me or not like me? Can I fuck you? Can I flee from you, right? Like okay. that's taking up a lot of RAM. The brain takes in nine, six to nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that gets through. So <laughs> one of the reasons, by the way, meditation is good is it lowers the amygdala's reactivity so you actually get different information. When, um, when you're training up, the, the other stuff that gets through is all your goals, right, over time. Because what your brain is doing is saying, oh, you want a house in the Caribbean. So what are the components of a house in the Caribbean? Okay, you're going to need a couple hundred thousand dollars in disposable income. Well, how do I get that? And your brain starts looking for opportunity. It starts letting in information that can be turned into do this work, but you don't you need, you need to understand that if you're tripping, if you're creating a, a future that is just so ridiculously out there, um, you can't get there that way, which is not to say don't have huge, big goals, but what you want to do is chunk those goals down and you want to do the work like inside the realm that is still believable because you, you otherwise you're tripping your inside, your, your bullshit detector and it's not going to work so well for you. Is that something also that can cause burnout for people too? Because if they're if they're not celebrating the smaller wins, then they're actually you know adding more cortisol and stress to their bodies. Yeah, well, I mean, you I mean, the smaller wins are the secret, right? Like literally, what's the secret to accomplishing the impossible? What's the secret to high performance? What's the secret to productivity? Tiny wins and learn to love them. Learn to love. Victory for me is I got. I, every day I put eight items on my to-do list because that's the exact number I know I can do and be at my most effective. Um, and every day I check off all eight and that's a victory, man. Nice. How do you say that's, but that? That's the secret. I, the honest to God, I always tell people, you want to know what the impossible looks like up close? Somebody wakes up, they got 10 things on their to-do list. They do them all incredibly well. They usually then get some exercise have some bit of social something because we need the social support for performance. Um, yeah. Have some kind of active recovery protocol. Do something to kind of distract the mind or learn something and go to bed and do it all over again. That's, that's what impossible looks like up close. That's a great day. I love it. Okay, and I think that's a really good way to wrap up the podcast. Stephen, I hear you have some pretty awesome trainings going on. Do you want to share with the listeners the details about those? Yeah, we got a couple. 
Twice a year, I do Flow for Writers, which is a two-day kind of intensive boot camp. And it's, you got to be a serious writer. Could be, doesn't matter what you're writing. Blogs, podcasts, ad copy, books. Um, the book, it's a little focused on, on, on writing nonfiction, but we do everything from kind of breaking down how great writing works, what's the neuroscience underneath engagement. So when you're reading a page turner, there's neurochemistry underneath that. How does that work? So I, you know, we really take that apart. I take about the fundamentals of creativity. We turbo boost the whole thing with flow. I, I walk people through it. You know, we, we do a section on actually the business of writing um, where we do stuff like, what does it actually take to write a, a book proposal? Nobody will ever show you what a real book proposal looks like. And if you actually talk to an agent, they'll give you bad advice. Um, and mainly because writers don't want the competition. So we break that down. We talk about what it takes to actually write a bestseller, meaning bestsellers don't happen accidentally. Nobody gets lucky. They're built and they're built in pretty specific ways. So we break that down. And then I surround the writing process, everything you ever want to know about writing from, you know, structure to how to, you know, get the most out of a writing session, to how to put yourself into flow to maximize creativity. So we do that a couple times a year. Uh, you can find information on my website. And then we also do uh, Zero to Dangerous, the Flow Research Collective, uh, about four times a year. And this is a two-day deep dive into flow hacking. It's literally everything I know and have learned over 20 years studying peak performance downloaded into your head. And, you know, the goal is to take you from zero to dangerous. Um, and we've had phenomenal, out of, out of both, we've had just incredible results. People love, love both. Um, lots of books have come out of Flow for Writers, which is really cool. Um, and, and people are getting deadly and uh, out of zero to dangerous as well. I like it. I think I'm going to have to attend one of those. Steven, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about uh, The Last Tangle in Cyberspace or you or the Flow Research, uh, Flow Research Collective, where's the best place they could do that at? StevenCotler.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. Excellent. Any final words for the, lis- for the listeners? I don't know. <laughs> I put you on the spot there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I got a sign hanging above my desk that says "Do the hard thing." Uh huh. So we'll go with that. And I, that's just you know, there's no substitute for persistence, excellent. right? Yeah. I don't know. That's good. No words of wisdom. That wasn't very wise. That was kind of <laughs> dumb. You, I don't know. We had enough value bombs going on through the podcast. So um, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I hope to meet you in person someday and uh, have a good chit chat and I'll buy you a drink or a dinner. But um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And listeners, Last Tango in Cyberspace, it's a great, great book. Two of my actually top 10 reads are also by Stephen, Stealing Fire and The Rise of Superman. So we'll wrap up there. Again, thank you, Stephen, once more. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.